Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom in the American way. Donald Trump is continuing to violate the law, to break the law, to defy the law. I mean, the White House has now instructed Carl Klein not to testify before Congress. No, you don't. don't. This is the guy who supervised getting a uh, security clearance over the objection of intelligence agencies, over the objection of the FBI, over the objection of the CIA for Jared Kushner. Similarly, Steve Mnuchin has ordered the Internal Revenue Service to defy the law and not give Trump's tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. Carl Klein is saying, well, you know, I'm receiving subpoenas from two masters, the executive branch and the uh, legislative branch. Actually, he no longer works at the White House. The Washington Post ran a headline on this thing that says White House instructs official to ignore Democratic subpoena. This is a totally BS headline. There's no such thing as a Democratic subpoena. This is a congressional subpoena. It's a matter of national security. The Washington Post is trying to make it like, oh, this is just a partisan game. No, it's not. This has to do with the nation's security. And telling them no, having all these various people saying no, no to Elijah Cummings, no to the House Ways and Means Committee. These are all simple, straightforward violations of the law and naked attempts to obstruct justice. This is the behavior of an authoritarian dictator, a person who doesn't believe in the concept of the Constitution and doesn't believe in the simple concepts of democracy. Elected officials like, you know, our members of Congress should not be tolerating this kind of behavior and should, in my opinion, prosecute Trump and his co-conspirators to the fullest extent of the law, including impeachment where appropriate. Kamala Harris became the second candidate to explicitly call for the impeachment of Donald Trump, or at least the beginning of the hearings. I mean, let's not make this thing too complicated. Nobody, including myself, is suggesting that Donald Trump should be impeached tomorrow morning. The way the process works is that Congress creates in the Judiciary Committee and Jerry Nadler's committee, you create a hearing into impeachment. And what that does, by the way, is it immediately blocks Trump's ability to issue pardons. Because the Constitution says that the one limit on the president's power to pardon is in the event of impeachments. So you open the impeachment hearings and you start bringing witnesses before Congress And you do it out in the open where everybody can see it. And then you decide, after you've had your hearings, after the whole nation has seen them, after you have some measure of public opinion as well as your own opinion as members of Congress, you decide whether you're going to vote to impeach him, in which case you send that to the House, and then the House sends that to the Senate, and the Senate holds the trial, or whether you're going to vote to simply censure him, which only requires a simple majority in the House, And once he's censured, that's it. It can go on to the Senate, and the Senate can do it or not. Or you decide not to do anything at all and say, okay, Donald, it's fine what you've been doing. No problem. But if you don't even hold the hearings, you're taking option three. You're saying, oh, it's it's all good. So anyhow, there's that. There's also, Louise and I watched five hours of CNN last night. What did you think? There was one of the candidates who kind of 
you know, I'm not going to name names here because I don't want to prejudice your feedback. I'd love to hear from you. But there was one candidate who I was kind of surprised that that candidate didn't do as well as I was expecting, frankly. There were a couple of others who did much better than I expected, and I learned things about them that I didn't know that impressed me. I am of the opinion that any of those five people would be better than Donald Trump. But I have my favorites, and I'm guessing you know who those people are. I'm curious what you thought. First up was Amy Klobuchar. She was followed by Elizabeth Warren. She was followed by, as I recall, Kamala Harris. Or maybe it was Bernie. Uh, Bernie got put into that 9 p.m. Eastern slot where Rachel's show is. So this, that would be the probably the least watched hour on CNN. Although maybe not. I don't know. And then after Bernie, as I recall, Pete Buttigieg. I might be wrong on the lineup there. But in any case, it was those five. And I'm interested in what you heard if you watched the CNN town halls. I ran for five hours. Each person got a full hour, which is a, I tip my hat to CNN. I mean, that was a big deal. It was very, very well done. And, you know, what did you see? What did you hear? And how is that altering your opinions? I mean, did any of those candidates say or do something that caused you to go, oh, wow, that's great. I didn't realize that. I'm more enthusiastic about that person. Or did they say things that caused you to say, really? That's all you got? Or you want to go there? This is worth burning up political capital or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just I had all of those responses, by the way, at various times through the night. And, you know, bottom line is I'm not going to personally, I'm not going to play the circular firing squad game. Any of the Democratic nominees. And I mean, you know, I'm personally far more in favor of the very progressive ones than I am of the more conservative ones, or even the ones that, you know, back when I was a kid would have been called Republicans. There's at least three such people, I think, in the race right now, maybe four. But even those, even the so-called moderates, are people that, you know, frankly, I think would do a much better job than Donald Trump. You know, the fact of the matter is that that's basically what we've been getting from the Democratic Party since 92 is you know, 1950s Republican positions. And, you know, it hasn't killed us. It hasn't harmed the Republican. It hasn't been as helpful as it could be. And certainly, you know, we haven't had an FDR-type president since LBJ, really, with the Great Society, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, all these kind of things. Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are now firmly on the side of you know, it's time to consider, seriously consider impeaching Donald Trump. In fact, Elizabeth Warren is of the opinion, we don't even need the hearings. I mean, she's not saying that, but, but she's like very, very clear. She read the report, the Mueller report, and it so shocked her. And it is a shocking document that she's now just saying, yeah, he should be impeached. He's not fit for office. I agree with that. But the process, you know, where you start in the process is you start with, well, we're not really sure. Let's hold the hearings. The fact of the matter is, this is a 450-page document with a couple of hundred pages of footnotes and associated material, not all of which we have, about 15% of which has been redacted. But with just what we have and just what we're seeing, this paints a very grim picture of a man in the White House who has no respect for the Constitution, no respect for the rule of law, no respect for law enforcement in the United States. No respect for due process. Essentially, no respect for democracy or for the office that he holds. And I suppose that shouldn't shock us, what he's been saying from kind of the get-go. In fact, what he was saying when he was campaigning. All the other Republican candidates were like, okay, that's these toast now. He just said X, Y, Z. He just attacked John McCain. He just fill in the blank, right? There were all these times, and the rest of the Republican candidates were like, wow, everybody's going to see that and know that this guy's unfit for office. But, you know, if you can get Scott Walker to suppress 100,000-plus votes in Wisconsin, you might win Wisconsin by 10,000, 20,000 votes. If you can get Rick Snyder in Michigan to suppress a couple hundred thousand votes, and the voting machines in Detroit, which is heavily Democratic, just somehow managed to lose 80,000 votes for president, then you might win Michigan by 10, 15,000 votes. 
And gee, was that a hack of those voting machines? And if so, by whom? Is anybody looking into that? If you can get you know, your buddies to, to promote your candidacy in Pennsylvania, you might win by a small margin there. We know from the Mueller report that Paul Manafort reached out to a Russian oligarch and said, hey, you know, we could use some help in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. How'd that work out? I don't know. I mean, I think we're still learning. But there's a lot going on here. So these two people, you know, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, have both said, you know, it's time to impeach the guy. I don't think anybody explicitly said, and please correct me if you heard something I didn't, but to the best of my knowledge, I don't think anybody explicitly said, no, we shouldn't hold an impeachment hearing. In fact, I don't think there are any Democrats who are taking that position right now, running for president, although I could be wrong. Nancy Pelosi's position is not that we should not hold impeachment hearings. It's that we've got a bunch of hearings happening right now in ways and means, in intelligence, in oversight, in judiciary, in each one of these committees. And, you know, let's see what comes out. I mean, this is a starting point, right? This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our special members-only video rant this week, we're talking about the bizarre hormone-disrupting chemicals like bisphenol A and phthalates and things like that that associated with metabolic disorders, with cancers, with childhood cancers, by these disruptive chemicals. And it turns out that bottled water appears to be one of the principal sources of this. This uh, study was done out of the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. They looked at stool samples of humans from four different continents and found that all of them had microplastic in it. It can get into your lymph system, it can get into your liver, it can get into your brain. Nasty, nasty stuff. So check it out at TomHartman.com and Patreon.com slash TomHartman. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And Loving What You Do, the new book by Ellen Ratner on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News from New York, Luke Vargas, uh, who also does a two-minute podcast every day. Luke, the uh, Trump administration was coercing U.N. security members to water down this resolution on sexual violence and armed conflicts. This is mind-boggling. The U.N. is trying to say that rape should not be a weapon of war, and the U.S. is trying to water it down. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, this is a pretty shameful day to be an American at the United Nations. I'll say that, especially hearing countries from all over the world, many of which have admittedly pretty bad human rights records, saying things to the effect that stripping language out of a Security Council resolution, as you mentioned, that tries to support victims of sexual violence in conflict from having any mention to their sexual and reproductive health in that resolution is like forcing these women to go through this crime again. In particular, what the U.S. seems to be complaining about is the fact that there were references in this resolution to the phrase sexual and reproductive health, end quote. This was construed by the State Department, not from the U.S. mission to the United Nations, which, bear in mind, there is no U.S. ambassador to the United Nations right now. You have career foreign service officers basically running the shop at, at, in New York, and you could tell they were basically trying to hold back their anger as they read the statements that were being sent to them from Washington today. But yes, this reference in a resolution to stop sexual violence and conflict that referenced sexual and reproductive health was seen as promoting of abortion, which is a violation of the Mexico City policy, which the administration put into effect very early on after Trump got elected, which basically says the U.S. will fund nothing around the world, no organization, no cause that ever gives women information, let alone carrying out abortions. But even if you inform someone that a safe abortion is something that might be available to them, the U.S. is systematically going around and zeroing out all funding for that. So this finally materialized at the U.N. Security Council today. And I think what's very upsetting about this and what you heard a lot of countries, most of the, the European countries and others complaining about, is that the U.S. for about 25 years actually led the charge in putting language about sexual and reproductive health 
into Security Council resolutions at a time when a lot of other countries were wary to do that, even some in Europe. And, and the U.S. is really in the vanguard now. Now we are seeking to undo that language. And I think what's very worrisome, and I'll leave it here, is that there are other countries, China and Russia in particular, who love this idea that long-standing principles of the UN Security Council that had been baked into resolutions over the course of decades could now be undone. You know, these are right. countries, and I would unfortunately say the U.S. is now among them, that are, are looking at various bits of language that talk about accountability for various crimes or responsibilities of states to international norms. And the, the long thinking had been, these were these are in so many resolutions now, you can't possibly go back. It would be so galling to excise that retroactively. Well, now the U.S. has essentially forced the, the U.N. Security Council to do that. It was all the worse, I think, because you had Nadia Murad, a young woman who was raped by the Islamic State in northern Iraq, gave testimony at this briefing today, as did Amal Clooney, who, who represents many of these victims of sexual violence, and again, the, the fact that, you know, the U.S. basically held this entire thing hostage with the threat of a veto, so long as these references to female reproductive health for people who have been raped could be taken out, is, is just embarrassing. And it's one of the, the worst examples of Trump administration pandering, I think, to conservative Christian interests over global leadership that we've seen in this administration so far. Yeah, what's so ironic is that George Herbert Walker Bush was a lifetime member and supporter of Planned Parenthood. Yep. And Ronald Reagan was pro-choice, aggressively pro-choice, until 1980, when they both basically got in with the religious right in the United States, with the Jerry Falwells and the and the yep. and the Franklin Grahams of the world, and and said, okay, we'll get rid of abortion if you'll bring your congregations to us, no matter how yep. corrupt we are, no matter what our other positions are, no matter that we want to take medicine away from sick people and food away from hungry people, the stuff that Jesus talked about. We're going to be all about abortion, and the Republican Party has been there ever. since. Sense. And they yeah. had the religious yeah. right with them. And it's bizarre. It's just bizarre. Yeah. Anyhow, in Myanmar, the country used to be Burma that has been engaging in a genocide against the Rohingya Muslim minority there that have fled all over the region. They arrested a couple of Reuters reporters. Are those indigenous reporters or are they foreign reporters? Are they no, living? they are Myanmar citizens, which is probably why this is happening. But again, it's it's quite upsetting. So these these Wallone and Kwaso were arrested in December 2017 when the genocide was really underway. They found through great investigative reporting that won them a Pulitzer last month evidence that the Myanmar security forces were responsible for some of these massacres against Muslim men. And the government had a prosecution witness who even testified that the police had planted evidence on these reporters in order to accuse them of trying to undermine the state. Now they have lost, as of a few hours ago, their last court appeal, which means this is in the, our hands to try and use public relations and other sorts of techniques to pressure Myanmar to let them go. But they've exhausted all legal options, which is, again, a very dark day for the press. Is there anybody in particular we can call or a website that, where people can get more information? You know, just search. Reuters is doing a great job bringing awareness. I would follow their lead. Okay, great. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Good talking with you. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair xchairtom.com. Yeah, Tom Hartman here with you. And Lori Wallach is on the line with us. Lori is the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website or citizen.org slash trade. And you can tweet her at Wallach Lori, L-O-R-I, W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-O-R-I. Lori, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you very much, Tom. Okay, so Trump has this NAFTA II, this North American Free Trade Agreement II. He's calling it the Mexican-American something or other. He renamed it, he rebranded it, and says, this is new and wonderful, and it's going to do great things. You've had a chance to look it over. What do you think? Well, in a certain way, more important than my opinion is that last week, the United States International Trade Commission, which is an independent government agency that is statutorily required to do an investigation and assessment of every trade agreement before it goes to Congress, mm-hmm. they issued their study last Thursday. And what they basically found was a very modest difference would be done by this agreement. And I would say, but for Trump making it sound like it was such a dramatic change, I don't know the ITC study would have gotten much attention at all because the main attention it got was as an exaggeration. So the ITC hmm. found that if the agreement, the modified NAFTA, were fully implemented in six years, U.S. GNP, the growth, the wealth of the economy, would be, brace yourself, 35 one-hundredths of 1% larger in six years. (laughs) 35 one-hundredths of 1%? 1%. This is what Donald Trump is going to give us with his great negotiating skills? This is smaller than the rounding error of the paperclip budget item in a very small government agency. Hmm. So the finding basically was, would have been negative, but for an assessment that was sort of made up that there was a positive trade gain to be found by freezing in place certain rights for the big online companies. The bottom line of all of it is, Everyone who has now for a year and a half been saying the agreement that they signed, the agreement as is, is not going to make the difference we need, but because they made some progress, and there is some notable progress that the ITC begrudgingly includes, it's worth fighting to get the stuff that we really need done. So some of the specific things in the ITC study that were super interesting So one of the best things that happened in the renegotiation is they got rid of investor-state dispute settlement. Right. The private courts. The corporate courts, okay. That promote job outsourcing. They got rid of that. And so one of the things the study finds is the positive impact, even though all the corporations are screaming bloody murder about having these special rights taken away, they found there's a positive impact. There'll be more investment in the U.S., Mm -hmm. less outsourcing. So that was good. But at the same time, the ITC found that the rules that would have less Chinese parts in autos or that might raise wages, they found all of those were negatives. Seriously. The way the study was done, those things that actually are the reason why all the unions and groups like Public Citizen aren't trying to kill the agreement right now, those are the things that they found were a problem. Meanwhile, they found economically good that big pharma would have special new monopolies and keep medicine prices high. I, I couldn't make this stuff this up. This is really bizarre. Is, is ITC a, a federal government agency? Are they under th- Trump's thumb? It's an independent agency, but I would say they've got two big problems. They have historically made grandiose, rosy predictions for all the past trade agreements that have been a catastrophe. Right. So just for instance, with China and the China WTO vote that you and I know has led to a ginormous hundreds of billions of dollars trade deficit. They said it would increase the trade deficit by $2 billion. Wow. Seriously. Wow. So they're always off. But in this instance, I would say what they are doing is they're trying to defend the status quo, and then they basically have such a broken methodology. But the pieces going into the methodology, like finding the benefits of having the ISDS taken out, that's worth looking at. Cut to the chase of all of it. The study came out. It's a really big sort of check-the-box moment in the process. It means now the implementing legislation could be sent to Congress. And what politically it means is we're where we were. The Democrats, the unions, groups like Public Citizen are saying you have to take out the special protections that pharma was allowed to put into the agreement. And you have to add the environmental and labor standards that are necessary to stop NAFTA's ongoing damage by bringing up wages and standards so we don't have race to the bomb outsourcing. That's an agreement that would be worth having. The one they signed last year, not so much. Right. So these are the things that the the Republicans will not do because they would benefit average people in the environment rather than billionaires and polluting industries. 
What's a very interesting situation, Tom, is that that's exactly right. And now Trump is in a position where either he's going to have to make those improvements that the House Democrats are insisting on, or the thing won't get passed. So Trump basically signed a deal that gave new goodies to Big Pharma and didn't fix the old problems Mm -hmm. to get the agreement approved and deliver on fixing NAFTA. The only deal that can get through Congress is the one that the Democrats would basically fix. And so he's going to have to choose, given the corporations don't want any changes. There's a multi-million dollar corporate campaign. The Republicans in Congress want no changes. But the agreement's dead if Mm. they don't take out the pharma stuff and add real labor and environmental standards. So stay tuned is what I would say. Yeah. So he's got to figure out if PR to him of getting an agreement that he can say whatever he wants about is more important than having an actual good agreement. This is probably a decision that they're going to make based on what kind of publicity they're going to get out of it and what kind of spin they can put on it rather than what's good for America or what's good for the economy. Well, to some degree, they don't have that option that you just described, though, because they can't get it through Congress. It can't get implemented unless Ah. they do the things the Democrats want because the Democrats are a majority in the House. Right. So it's to some degree, is the president going to be willing to basically make the changes the Democrats insist on that the corporations and the Republicans in Congress oppose in order to get the deal through Congress, and then he'll be sharing some of the credit with the Democrats who made him do the thing he actually didn't do in his own. That's Hmm. the big question no one knows about. But if we want to maximize the chances that we end up with a new NAFTA that at least starts to stop some of the ongoing damage, Mm -hmm. it's really important for everyone to pile on to their Democratic members of Congress and insist that they get the medicine, the giveaways to pharma out, and the labor and environmental standards in. Okay, so... that is the agreement we need. Right, so when you call your Democratic member of the House or the Senate at 202-225-3121, what you say is this new NAFTA deal that the Trump administration is negotiating, we want the goodies for the drug companies out of it, and we want labor and environmental standards put into it. And that the agreement as is, not okay, but there certainly is a changed NAFTA that could help stop the damage, and that's what we're trying to get. Right. Because, Tom, it's not like TPP, where if we stop it, there's nothing. Right. If we don't replace it, we've still got the damage in NAFTA. Right. And we can all do this together. There you go. Lori Wallach with Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website. Lori, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always informative talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from George Packer's new book, Our Man. The subtitle is Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century. This is from the uh, prologue. Holbrook? Yes, I knew him. I can't get his voice out of my head. I can hear it saying, you haven't read that book? You really need to read it. Saying, I feel, and I hope this doesn't sound too self-satisfied, that in a very difficult situation where nobody has the answer... I at least know what the overall questions and moving parts are. Saying, gotta go, Hillary's on the line. That voice, calm, nasal, a trace of older New York, a sing-song cadence when he was being playful, but always doing something to you, cajoling, flattering, bullying, seducing, needling, analyzing, one-upping you, applying continuous pressure like a strong underwater current so that by the end of the conversation, even two minutes on the phone, You found yourself far out from where you'd started, unsure how you got there, and mysteriously exhausted. He was six feet one, but he seemed bigger. He had long, skinny limbs and a barrel chest and broad, square shoulder bones, on top of which sat his strangely small head, and encased within it the sleepless brain. His feet were so far from his trunk that as his body wore down and the blood stopped circulating properly, they swelled up and became marbled red and white like steak. He had special shoes made and carried extra socks in his leather attache case, sweating through half a dozen pairs a day, stripping them off on long flights and draping them over his seat pocket in first class, or else cramming used socks next to the classified documents in his briefcase. He wrote a book about ending the war in Bosnia, the place in history that he always craved, though it was never enough, with his feet planted in a Brookstone Shiatsu foot massager. One morning, he showed up late for a meeting in the Secretary of State's suite at Waldorf Astoria in his stocking feet, shirt untucked and fly half-zipped, padding around the room and picking grapes off a fruit basket, while Madeleine Albright's furious stare tracked his every move. 
During a video conference call from the U.N. mission in New York, his feet were propped up on a chair. While down in the White House Situation Room, their giant distortion completely filled the wall screen and so disrupted the meeting that President Clinton's national security advisor finally ordered a military aide to turn off the video feed. Holbrook put his feet up everywhere in the White House, on other people's desks and coffee tables for relief and for advantage. Near the end, it seemed as if all his troubles were collecting in his feet. Atrial fibrillation, marital tension, thwarted ambition, conspiring colleagues, hundreds of thousands of air miles, corrupt foreign leaders, a war that would not yield to the relentless force of his will. But at the other extreme of his feet, the ice blue eyes were on perpetual alert. Their light told you that his intelligence was always awake and working. They captured nearly everything and gave almost nothing away. Like one-way mirrors, they looked outward, not inward. I never knew anyone quicker to size up a room, an adversary, a newspaper article, a set of variables in a complex situation, even his own imminent death. The ceaseless appraising told me of a manic spirit churning somewhere within the low voice and languid limbs. Once in the 1980s, he was walking down Madison Avenue when an acquaintance passed him and called out, Hi, Dick. Holbrook watched the man go by, then turned to his companion. I wonder what he meant by that. Yes, his curly hair never obeyed the comb, and his suit always looked rumpled, and he couldn't stay off the phone or TV, and he kept losing things. He ate as much food as fast as he could, once slicing open the tip of his nose on a clamshell and bleeding through a pair of cloth napkins. Yes, he was in almost every way a disorderly president, but his eyes never lost focus. So much thought, so little inwardness. He could not be alone. He might have had to think about himself. Maybe that was something he couldn't afford to do. Leslie Gelb, Holbrook's friend of 45 years and recipient of multiple daily phone calls, would butt into a monologue and ask, what's Obama like? Holbrook would give a brilliant analysis of the president. How do you think you affect Obama? Holbrook had nothing to say. Where did it come from, that blind spot behind his eyes that masked his inner life? It was a great advantage over the rest of us because the propulsion from idea to action was never broken by self-scrutiny. It was also a great vulnerability, and finally, it was fatal. I can hear the voice saying, it's your problem now, not mine. He loved speed. Franz Klammer's fearless downhill run for the gold in 1976 was a feat Holbrook never finished admiring until he almost believed that he had been the one throwing himself into those dangerous turns at Innsbruck. He pedaled his bike straight into a swarming Saigon intersection while talking about the war to a terrified blonde journalist just arrived from Manhattan. He zipped through Paris traffic while lecturing his State Department boss on the status of the Vietnam peace talks. His Humvee careened down the dirt switchbacks of the Mount Ingman Road above besieged Sarajevo, chased by the armored personnel carrier with his doomed colleagues. He loved mischief. It made him endless fun to be with and got him into unnecessary trouble. In 1967, he was standing outside Robert McNamara's office on the second floor of the Pentagon, a 26-year-old junior official hoping to catch the Secretary of Defense on his way in or out for no reason other than self-advancement. A famous colonel was waiting, too, a decorated paratrooper back from Vietnam, where Holbrook had known him. Everything about the colonel was pressed and creased, his uniform shirt, his face, his pants carefully tucked into his boots and delicately bloused around his calves. He must have spent the whole morning on them. That looks really beautiful, Holbrook said, and he reached down and yanked a pants leg all the way out of its boot. The colonel started yelling. Holbrook laughed. George Packer's book, Power Man. Hey, Tom Harbin here. You know, we've been talking on this program for years now about the benefits of CBD. And I just, in the last few months, discovered New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. It is the premium, organic, highly concentrated pure CBD oil. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, is grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's n-u-leafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com.
Tom Hartman here with you. And what do we do here with all this? We'll continue that conversation. But first, I wanted to get an update from France about what's going on there. The Yellow Vest movement is, I think, in many ways, the French version of what might happen in the United States if the left did a Tea Party kind of thing. Although maybe Cole Stangler would disagree with me on that. I'd love to get his thoughts on it. And we can right now, in fact. Cole is on the line with us. His website, Cole Stangler, C-O-L-E-S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R.com. You can tweet him also at Cole Stangler. Cole, welcome, and thanks for giving us a shout from Paris today. How, how are, how's everything there? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. My pleasure. I understand that the Yellow Vest movement has been protesting the billionaires rebuilding Notre Dame. This has to be more complex than just that. You know, what's happening with that movement? The most recent weekend here has been the 23rd straight weekend of these Yellow Vest protests, which, which is pretty remarkable. Protests started back in November of last year. They've now gone on, just had Act 23, and, and presumably another protest coming up in the following weekend. And this is all ahead of, of May 1st, which is, which is Workers' Day, and we could expect a pretty large turnout there of both the unions and, and probably the Yellow Vest as well. Now, it, it is important to note as well that in terms of the size of the protests, they have declined um, in, in, a, you know, in, in a pretty substantial way, I would say. Uh, the support as well has declined a little bit. At the beginning of the protest, we had about 70% support in the polls um, in support of the movement. And now it's down to about 50%, about half the country. But I still think that, that that's, that's a significant number in France when you look at the, the, the popularity of major political figures, whether that's Emmanuel Macron, whether that's the far-right uh, National Rally Party led by Marine Le Pen, whether it's the mainstream right-wing party. 50% support in France is, is, is a, is a you know, non-negligible figure, I mean, sure. I think it speaks to how people continue to identify with the LOS protests, or at the very least, have sympathy for this movement, which has really crystallized a lot of the opposition to Emmanuel Macron and, and, and frustrations that people have had with the general trajectory of French politics for the last couple of decades, that is ignoring the plight of working people, not investing enough in public services, enacting policies that are designed to curry favor with the rich at the expense of the rest. Macron has been pushing basically neoliberalism, good old generic neoliberalism. Yeah, you know, we've seen this, I think I've talked about this before on, on your program, but, you know, his very first budget in office, Emmanuel Macron goes in and, and implements this massive tax cut for the super rich. And when I say the super rich, that really is the super rich, people, people with 1.3 million euros in assets. The wealth tax that used to exist in France, Macron repealed that um, or, or, or put it to that it applies only to real estate assets. Um, in any case, a very significant tax cut for the wealthiest um, the wealthiest fraction of, of, of yeah. French society. And that, that was really the signal for the rest of his policies. So speaking to the actual, the Yellow Vest movement, I know, and I was, I was kind of close to this, and so it was, it was painful to watch. With the Occupy movement in the United States, you know, that emerged as a consequence of the financial excesses and all this sort of thing, in New York City, good chunks of that Occupy movement got co-opted by the Bob Avakian cult, basically, this, this political cult that operates under all kinds of different names. There were yeah. parts of the Occupy movement that were also, I know in Washington, D.C., one group that was basically co-opted by the uh, Lynn and LaRouche bunch, you know? And it was like there were all these kind of fringe groups that have identified themselves as lefties. I mean, Bob Avakian, that's the Revolutionary Communist Party, mm -hmm. that basically took over a relatively egalitarian movement here in the United States because it was leaderless, because, it, you know, or, or you could say that that made it easier to take over. Is anything like that happening in France with the Yellow Vest movement? Yeah, you know, I, one of the things about the LS movement, as you point out, is, is, is certainly it's extremely decentralized. It really depends on the location you're in. You can have the, the, the makeup of a group in, in say, uh, the northeast of Paris can be very different from the makeup of a group in, in southwestern France uh, or in the north of France. The historic mining areas of the country that actually have a lot in common with West Virginia and, and, and parts of the U.S. In any case, you know, the movement does vary a lot. And so we do see some kind of fringe, radical, you know, some far-right involvement. But I would say... Overall, you know, the movement has, has maintained its integrity. Uh, you know, there are trade unionists that are involved more in, in certain parts of the country. There are left-wing activists that are more involved in certain parts of the country. So it really depends on, on what you're looking at. And it really depends on the city is really yeah. the answer to the question. Yeah. So tell me about the Yellow Vest movement's response to the Notre Dame fire. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things that, that happened, in, in some ways for me, I think I, you know, I, I tweeted this or, or something of this effect, but this horrible tragedy that happened at, at Notre Dame, 
you know, I think everyone in the country was pretty shocked looking at these images, going to sleep, not knowing if they were going to see the cathedral the next morning. So it was, it was a pretty traumatic moment, especially for all the history and, and you know, the architectural marvel that is the, that is the cathedral. But in some ways, what was refreshing to me was the very next morning when you saw these donations that were, that were coming in from, from, the, from some of France's wealthiest families, the Arnaud family, um, which owns the LMBH, LMBH luxury brand, the Pinot family, which owns another luxury brand holding company. These donations started pouring in, and I think now they're over one billion euros has been promised by these by these rich families. <laughs> there was already criticism the next morning about these families ostensibly using the tragedy of Notre Dame to reduce their tax bill because the next morning you had supporters of these families saying, you know, it would be nice if the donations that were that they would be giving would would be um, taxed less than at, at, at the current rate and, and and therefore reduce their tax bill. And so we saw this offensive from from supporters of the families and, and immediate backlash and criticism from a lot of, of, of people in France. And, and eventually, I think we've reached the point now where those donations are going to just be regular donations and they're not provide any tax advantages. Hmm. So what I was saying was it was actually refreshing in, in, in some ways to see the backlash in, in, in France to say, you know what, this is really ups- this is upsetting. It's a tragic moment, but at the same time, it shouldn't be used by, by people to advance their, their policy aims. And, and in fact, now the campaign for the European Parliament, elections that are coming up in, at the end of May from May 23rd to 26th, elections across Europe, that campaign was put on pause a little bit following the the fire at Notre Dame, and and we've seen right now this week so far the the fury and the criticism, the electricity of the campaign is back and running again, and parties are, are once again criticizing each other, and that little brief moment of, of national unity was a flicker, and, and we're back to the regular grind of, of French politics. You know, people like to debate a lot and and, and criticize each other. No, I I get that. Pulling back a little bit and looking at all of Europe, we see in countries like Poland and Hungary, right-wing governments uh, taking power, authoritarian governments, nationalist governments, racist, essentially, governments. On the other hand, in Portugal, for example, you've got a very progressive government that, that defied the European Union's, you know, the whole Eurozone thing and said, no, we're going to engage in deficit spending to get ourselves out of a recession. And it actually worked and kind of giving a lie to the EU's neoliberal policies, frankly, that took down, in my opinion, Spain and Greece over the last decade. We've got this spectrum of political perspectives inside the European Union. How is that playing out, not just in France, but across Europe? What direction do you see the continent moving? Yeah, you know, it's a tough question, because I think it really depends on the national context. As you pointed out, you know, in Portugal, you have the coalition left-wing government that's in power, in the UK with, you know, I don't know if we should include the UK as part of the discussion, although presumably for at least the next few months they are. Um, you know, the UK has its own specific context, France as well. Um, you know, in, in, in Spain, which was a, a flicker of, of, or Spain was, was certainly seen as a, as a source of hope for a lot of people on the left um, um, around the same time as, as Syriza in Greece took power on their, on their anti-austerity agenda. Spain has, obviously has Podemos, the left populist political party, and polls there are not looking very favorable for Podemos, although the socialists seem to be able to conserve their majority. But Spain seems to be a country that, if the, at least the radical left or the populist left or, or Podemos doesn't seem to be on the verge of taking power, the, at least the center left is with the socialists. But other than Spain, it's kind of a dark picture if you look at some of the major economies and the major countries in Europe. So if you look at France, if you look at Italy and Germany, the three biggest countries in the EU um, in terms of both population and, and, and the economy... These are countries where the debate, and I wrote about this in, in a recent piece for, for Commonweal magazine, the debate seems, you know, depressingly kind of stuck between this. On the one hand, um, you know, defending the current order of the European Union with all of the, the harmful economic policies that that, that that implies, on the one hand. And on the other hand, this kind of uh, far-right-dominated, uh, xenophobic populism in France. That's the, that's the National Rally Party, the former National Front. In Germany, you have the AFD. In Italy, uh, you have the Lega Party, which is now in a, in a, in a coalition government. So and Steve Bannon is getting really his fingers of, into all of these, is he not? You know, he, he is, and I actually did, did report on that as well for a piece in a French outlet that came out a few weeks ago. And, you know, the interesting thing about Bannon's outfit there, and you, you can find this reported in, in English as well, is is Bannon launched this this movement, which he which he called the movement, and that's and that's the name of the group he, he formed with a small party in Belgium. Um, and the idea was they were going to be spending money and, and, and providing polling assistance and, and and doing data analysis for all these far right populist parties across Europe. So the three parties I mentioned, and you know mm-hmm. the AFD in Germany, National Rally in France, Lega in Italy. So this huge uh, momentum around around the, the start of the movement, and and it turns out that actually there there are real legal barriers <laughs> to being able to 
provide foreign assistance, at least of that scope, to in, in, in a lot of the European countries. So oh, that's the movement does seem to be blocked, at least the way it was. It won't be able to achieve a lot of the objectives it, it set out from the beginning. But the far right is still on the ascendant, and it's a very frightening and, and kind of dark climate here. So yeah. hopefully things will improve over the next few months. Hopefully. Well, keep us up to date, Cole. Great talking with you. Cole Stangler, Paris-based journalist and contributor to The Nation and Jacobin, among others. ColeStangler.com is the website. You can tweet him at Cole Stangler. Cole, thanks a lot. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold you're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you. This is not quite a crazy alert, but it could qualify for one, I suppose. There's a paper in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. First of all, we know that the U.S. fertility rate has hit an all-time low. American citizens are producing fewer babies than basically at any time other than during the year after the financial crisis and some other really rough times in the United States. And people are wondering why. Why are people having fewer children? The Archives of Sexual Behavior article suggests that it's because of Netflix. <laughs> people are watching streaming video instead of having sex. Interesting. Anyhow, there are a few other things that are going on that I wanted to point out to you. The first comes from the Financial Times. Uh, Raina Foruhar is one of the editors there, and she writes Swamp Notes, Money and Power in Trump's America. It's a newsletter that subscribers to the Financial Times can get. And she points out that Team Trump is investing only 4% of the president's Facebook ad spending in the 18 to 35-year group. In other words, among young people, he's only spending 4%. Most of his money is going to boomers. His base are the Fox News watchers, and Fox News, the average age of their viewers is 71 but meanwhile, Bernie Sanders is spending 49% of his Facebook ad money on 18 to 35 candidates. And she notes this underscores that in 2020, Republicans are courting seniors and Democrats are all about the youth. As she points out, for the young people, 10,000 baby boomers are retiring every day and about a third of them have less than $25,000 in retirement savings. That's scary. So that's going to well, it depends if seniors think that Trump is their guy. So that's a tough one. But at the same time, millennials, what they're facing is being the first generation, basically since the founding of the republic, with the exception of maybe the Great Depression, that is not as well off as their parents or that is actually doing worse than their parents. And one of the major things, by the way, that is influencing that is student loan debt. We have a $1.6 or $1.7 trillion mass of student loan debt in the United States. Elizabeth Warren just came out with a comprehensive plan to end student debt and provide free public higher education. Her plan, from the summary put together by Joan McCarter over at Daily Kos, the plan is to cancel up to $50,000 in student debt owed by 42 million Americans. There are 45 million Americans who have student loan debt. 95% of that is $50,000 or yet less held by 95% of all the people who have student loan debt. So this would wipe out the debt 100% of 95% of Americans and reduce the debt of an additional 5%, the remaining 5% of Americans, by $50,000. That's if you have household income of less than hundred grand a year. $130,000 a year, you get $40,000 worth of debt reduced. It's a sliding scale. And it's not taxable, by the way. 
which was one of the big concerns before was, hey, if they wipe out my student debt, is that considered a gift? Do I have to pay taxes on that? No, under Elizabeth Warren's plan. She says, once we've cleared out the debt that's been holding down an entire generation of Americans, we must ensure that we never have another student debt crisis again. We must fundamentally change the broken system that created the crisis in the first place. That makes making free public education available to every American for primary and secondary school, as well as for two and four year public colleges. The federal government and states would partner to split tuition and fees and would expand eligibility and funding for Pell Grants to cover non-tuition costs to make sure lower income and middle class students have a better chance of graduating without debt. Brilliant. She's knocking them out of the park every single week. She's got a new one and she's not getting anything close, in my opinion, to the media coverage that I mean, you know, Trump is still getting all the media. It's, it's bizarre. It's just absolutely bizarre. So Charles Blow on impeachment, he says, I'm tired of all the fear and trepidation. Counterintelligence expert says Congress not beginning impeachment hearing sends a double signal to foreign countries that they can interfere with our elections. And as long as the candidate wins, he can obstruct any investigation into it and no one will do anything about it. Amazing. Eric in Auburn, Washington, listening on SiriusXM. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I am wondering, and, and I have only read a small portion of the report, but it seems to me that since Mueller's team was investigating Russian interference, that it would have made total sense for them to dig into all sorts of very specific information about the voting machines and the processes in the key battleground states, especially where, you know, Manafort was providing information to Kalimnik. Right. And I'm wondering, did they? Because it seems to me that those 80,000 votes which swung the Electoral College, that that is so key to determining what happened there, because that right there could totally negate Trump's victory. Yes, I agree. And the question, were the voting machines hacked or were the election tabulators hacked? Exactly what happened? And to the best of my knowledge, the Mueller report, uh, the Mueller commission did not investigate any of that. You know, I've read the commission report, or at least probably 80% of it now, and I see no reference to that anywhere, and I've seen no reference to it in the footnotes. Now, maybe I've missed it, and if I have, if anybody knows that, please call me and correct me. But to the best of my knowledge, no, they did not. In fact, we've got, as a nation, this whole policy. We've had it since 2002 of see no evil, speak no evil and hear no evil with regard to voting machines and the possibility that they may be vulnerable to hacks. And I think it's frankly a crime against democracy. Eric, thank you. You raised a really important point. Carol in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? I don't know if you had seen the rollout of the DNC and ad going after Trump's promises because Trump campaign's slogan is promises made, promises kept. Right. When I first heard that months ago, I thought, oh boy, they just handed the Democrats a gift. Go after every single one of those promises broken. Right. And the DNC is doing that. And they rolled out an ad that I saw this morning on MSNBC with all the companies around the country showing maps and cities and the names of the companies. Real quick, it's maybe a 30-second spot, really well done. But all the companies that have uprooted after Trump said, not one plant will be closed right. in this country if I'm elected. And I don't think, though, Carol, whatever. the majority of voters need to be told that Donald Trump lied to them. I think they need to be told true. they're interested in is, you know, okay, we got it. This guy told us everything was going to be roses, and it's not. So what are you going to do for me? You're right about that. This is a good start. I think that if there are enough promises, they can keep running these. Hopefully they'll place these by ad time on Fox News. Yeah. Instead of just preaching to the converted, all of us, yeah, outline all these promises that he broke. Although on a, on a number of occasions, Fox has refused to carry Democratic ads. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Even though it went paid for at yep. their going rate, which is probably pretty high. Yep. That's interesting. Yep. Yeah, they, well, are not, anyway. they are not a uh, benign actor and they are not a news channel. They are the propaganda arm of the billionaires owned by billionaire Rupert Murdoch. I mean, it's just that simple. Fox that's News simple, is the they, propaganda they arm of the billionaires. They can afford to pick and choose who, whose ads they run. Yeah, and who they let on their television network. I'm frankly astonished that they decided that they would put Bernie on. Unfortunately, I can't watch Fox News anymore. I've, I've got a 
TV package, uh, you know, with Sling that doesn't include Fox. <laughs> I'm not willing to pay for it. Yeah, my uh, FS, uh, well, I'm sorry, my uh, Dish TV that I have FS TV on it doesn't have, I don't have Fox. I don't have that privilege either. Yeah, there you go. It's a great loss. Carol, Thank you, Carol, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Gene in Myerstown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gene, you had some thoughts on the town halls last night? I only watched the first three, and nothing changed in my opinions. I like Elizabeth and Bernie an awful lot, but I'm very angered about these stupid questions for Bernie. Was it, I guess it was Fox maybe the week before, or MSNBC keeps flirting with this too, this socialism thing. Yeah. And, and then the money questions at Bernie all the time. I mean, come on. Who in their right mind would really believe that Bernie's going to change his positions and not be willing to pay his fair share of taxes. I mean, I'm just so sick of it. It makes CNN, in my opinion, look like Dumbo's. Like part of the herd that wants to take down Bernie. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. With Elizabeth Warren, they were less aggressive, but it was still pushing the boundaries on the one hand. On the other hand, when in a venue like that, you ask somebody like Bernie Sanders, who actually can answer those questions, you ask them tough questions, you get tough answers. I mean, may shut down or make it harder for the Republicans if Bernie is the nominee, to run against him as a Soviet, basically, because he's not. And that was the question that was asked last night. How can you support the Soviet Union, basically, or Soviet-style? Yeah, that was terrible. I know. It was, it, was, terrible. It, it, it was shocking, frankly, that the CNN producers chose to highlight that question, to have that person stand up and mm-hmm. ask that question that way. It was but absolutely Bernie shocking. handled it well. He did. And he, he handled, handled the well. entire evening well, I thought. And, and, and so did, so did uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. Mickey in Ormond Beach, Florida. Hey, Mickey, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I want you to know you're the best. Thanks. My question is, can you explain Amy Klobuchar's difference of her health care plan compared to the other candidates? I don't. You know, what I heard last night was that she was saying that she didn't have a health care plan, that she wanted to maintain Obamacare, she wanted to repair Obamacare, put it back together, and then add the public option to it. And that over time, people would use that public option more and more and more, and that would ultimately lead us to something like a Medicare for All program. I think that's largely true, by the way. I think that if the public option had been there in the get-go, that by now we would have many more people, certainly on either Medicare or Medicaid, whichever one turned out to be the public option. But that's my understanding of what she said, Mickey. Yeah, well, and she's not my candidate. I love Elizabeth. But I thought what she said was making sense. And I'm like, well, you know, we want what's best. Yeah. Well, she's, you know, she's taking the position that the health insurance company should be allowed to survive for a while, too. And the largest and most toxic of all of them uh, is United Healthcare, and they're headquartered right there in Minnesota, which is the state that Amy represents. I have no idea what her relationship with them is, if there is any at all. And I don't know if that's informing yeah. her perspective on health care. I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt and assume that it's not. But it is. Right. So what, it, that yeah, would have been an interesting is, question. Follows, uh, you know, what's your relationship with United Healthcare, and how does that color your take on health care? Yeah, but what if all those people get fired? that work there. Well, you know, when the buggy whip manufacturers went out of work, people who were making buggy whips went off and made cars. I mean, (laughs) if you've got people who've got a good skill set in terms of of dealing with insurance claims, and you're going to have to hire a couple hundred thousand people over in Medicare and Medicaid, and you're going to lose a couple hundred thousand people over at UnitedHealthcare and Aetna, it seems like a wash to me. I mean, you know, there may be a few people who are out of work, but there's probably a lot of them who are ready to retire anyway. It's not that I'm celebrating that somebody who works at United Healthcare may lose their job, but I just I don't think that it's going to have that kind of impact on the economy. The people who say that it is are, are just being, in my opinion, shills for the, the banksters who call themselves health insurance companies. Mickey, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Corey in Seattle. Hey, Corey, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Hey, um, so I didn't actually hear about these town halls until this morning uh, on the news. So I went to look it up today, and I'm just letting you know, I can't find the full town hall for any of the candidates. And uh, it seems like CNN has I don't know, links to their website or... 
Right. Um, they just have like little clips and takes, and you know, as much as you can, I think it's best to listen to the whole thing and hear it from the horse's mouth instead I of agree. someone's takes. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, if you know anywhere where you can watch the full video, if any of your listeners know where I don't, it wouldn't surprise video. me if there are bootleg versions of it on YouTube. Uh, they probably won't last very long because of copyright violations, but right. I, you know, typically that's where you find those kinds of things. Uh, there's a bootleg version right now of uh, David Attenborough's climate thing from BBC. and BBC hasn't yet figured it out. Um, so check that out. Thanks for the call. Jennifer in Stillwater, Minnesota, listening on AM 950. Hey, Jennifer, what's up? Hi, yeah, I just wanted to say that everybody noticing that Bernie was getting horrible questions from CNN, it's probably because they just hired that Sarah Isagor, the one who was Jeff Sessions' spokeswoman. She worked for the Trump campaign. Oh, right, and she's supposed to oversee their election coverage. Yes, yeah, she's in charge of CNN's 2020 presidential campaign coverage, and they just hired her. She's described as a GOP operative, right. Sarah Isagor, I-S-G-U-R. If you look at the Share Blue article from February, you know, she worked for Jeff Sessions. She attacked Did she, did she actually get that job? I mean, I, I, I thought when it was announced that there was enough blowback that they that she backed out or they withdrew it, but apparently not? Um, I don't think so. If you Google around, huh. it looks like she got the job. But that's oh, the answer to the question. I don't even have cable TV, so yeah. I'm just listening to all you guys. So Yeah, well, you, you may well be right, Jennifer. That makes a <laughs> lot of sense. Jennifer, thank you for that, yep. and thank, thanks for the reminder. Yep. I had reported that here when it first came out, but uh, anyhow. Elliot, you got the last question of the day. We've got about a minute. What's on your mind? Well, I did watch most of the debates last night, and I have a question. Question. I have a comment and a question. And it seems to me the most important issue is campaign finance because global warming, big pharma, banking, screwing the consumers, it's not going to happen until money is no longer being paid for. I agree. Um, I agree. Take, and, and Bernie talked about it and Buttigieg. I didn't yeah, Buttigieg actually called it. for an amendment to the Constitution to say corporations are not people and money is not uh, speech. I mean, that blew my mind. I've not heard that from any, you know, Bernie's been calling for that for years, although he doesn't, it's not part of his stump speech, I don't think, but, but Buttigieg, really. Yeah, and, and my question is, did Mueller say that the reason that he couldn't find obstruction is because he can't uh, indict a sitting president? No, he said that the reason he didn't make specific indictment recommendations is because he can't indict a sitting president. He said explicitly that the reason he couldn't find the, the proof of the collusion was because Don Jr. was using WhatsApp. They did. They, they were uh, Manafort. There's so many of these guys were using these apps that delete the messages. So many documents were destroyed. The burn bags in the White House, all this stuff, you know, all this unconventional stuff that basically they buried it so deep that he couldn't find it. He couldn't prove it. And again, that's something that Congress can undertake. Okay, let's unbury some of this stuff. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's been a great day. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires your assistance, your participation tag. You've You're been listening it. to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.